This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question is, how do we respond to Islamic extremism? To help us think about this, we have Dr. Bernie Power join us. Bernie lectures in the Comparative Study of Islam and Christianity at Melbourne School of Theology. He lived for over 20 years in several countries in the Middle East. He's a popular speaker, regularly debates Muslims, and is the author of the book, Understanding Jesus and Muhammad. And he joins me now. Please welcome Dr. Bernie Power. Now, you lived for over 20 years in Muslim countries in the Middle East. What was that like? Hmm. That's interesting. We uh, really enjoyed the, the experience in terms of the relationships that we had with Muslim people. They're lovely people. We had them as friends, as neighbours, as colleagues. Um, my wife's a doctor, so she had them as patients. I was teaching, so I had them as students. So that was a really positive aspect of it. The, there was another side of it as well that was just the impact of Islam on the societies that we lived in. Islam has struggled to establish uh, just and peaceful societies. And the first country we lived in, Pakistan, in the time that we were there, over 3,000 people were killed in uh, ethnic violence. And it was quite a, a common theme in all of the places that we lived. So what's it like living in a place where there's violence going on all the time? You kind of uh, live a life of hyper-alertness, so you're conscious of this, uh, aware of things like seeing army trucks out on the street, hearing noises, watching people, so that, that kind of aspect is there. So then what drives your ongoing interest then in engaging Islam? Well, today? there's certainly a lot of interest in Islam today, and I'm uh, constantly speaking at events uh, because of people wanting to know how can we think about Islam, what's going on, and uh, also connecting with Muslim people and hearing their stories and their, their worldview and seeking to respond to that. Today we're talking with Bernie Power about Islamic extremism. So Bernie, in today's quiz, I thought we'd quiz you on Islam. So I've got two questions, both multiple choice. Okay, you ready, Bernie? Mm -hmm. yep. You're good. You sound very ready. Okay, so which country has the largest Muslim population in the world? Is it A, Saudi Arabia, B, Indonesia, C, Iran, or D, New Zealand? I'm going for B, Indonesia. B, and you're correct, yes. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. There are over 200 million Muslims in Indonesia, comprising around 12% of the Muslim population of the world. The next highest is actually Pakistan and then India and Bangladesh. Uh, now, question two. Islam originated in what is now the country of A, Saudi Arabia, B, Israel, C, Jordan, or D, New Zealand? <laughs> I'm going for A, Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is correct. Congratulations. So, Bernie, in our Islam quiz, you got two out of two right. Well done. You passed. Big round of applause for Bernie Power. So, whilst Saudi Arabia is almost exclusively Islamic now, it seemed at the time of its origin it was a mix of all kinds of religions. So, maybe can you tell us a little bit about the origins of Islam and the life of Muhammad? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Uh, according to Islamic theologians, Islam actually began with the creation of Adam. So, they would say it's the original religion, mm -hmm. which uh, all people should follow, and other religions are kind of aberrations. But uh, most people would see that 
coming from the, the life of Muhammad. He was born in 570 AD, and in 610 AD received a call from Allah to start preaching that there was only one true God uh, mm -hmm. named Allah, uh, that they should turn away from idols because the people at that time were polytheists, uh, worshipping lots of uh, idols, and that they should start living good lives. And he went out onto the streets of Mecca and started preaching that message. It was very unpopular because uh, commerce came from the fact that they had so many idols in the town, and he and his followers were persecuted uh, for that. But his teaching in that time was very kind of peaceful and tolerant, encouraging people to forgive, not to retaliate. But things changed in 622 AD when he got an invitation from a city to the north called Medina, and he moved there with the 200 followers that he'd gained in his 12 years of preaching, and they established Medina as the first Islamic city. Mm -hmm. But it also unleashed a, a wave of, of terror that began during that time. So he received a revelation giving permission to fight. And so he and his followers took up arms and they began attacking initially the caravans and then the towns around them. And this kind of mushroomed and snowballed until ultimately by the end of his life, Muhammad ruled over the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. It was at the cost of thousands of lives. Anybody who didn't uh, submit to Islam was then a target for war. Mm -hmm. uh, slavery was uh, practiced, um, beheadings were widespread. A lot of the stuff that we see happening in ISIS were going on during those final mm. 10 years of Muhammad's life. But it didn't begin in a violent way. He no, said it no. began in a peaceful way. Very he preached peaceful. and then there was a, almost a transformation. Yes, yes. It's like two faces of Muhammad, the, the peaceful Meccan face and, and the, the violent Medinan face. Mm. And so subsequent to that, obviously, will Islam continue to grow? Yes. Um, and so when Muhammad died, his followers continued that doctrine of war and then began invading the countries around them. And we saw very quickly within 20 years that occupied most of the Middle East, all of the Middle East, and within 100 years it pushed right across and had gone into Spain and Portugal, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, uh, up to parts of Turkey. Yeah, so it was quite a, um, a successful enterprise from a military perspective. Mm. Islam is very different to other religions, for example, Christianity, because there's a connection between the state and the religion, isn't there? Do you want to explore a bit about mm, that? Yeah. yeah, so Muhammad's move to Medina in 622, really, for him, it was establishing an Islamic state, which meant uh, social, political, economic, legal, military and spiritual a rule over the area, which is mm. what Muslims will look back to that as the perfect time. And so often they will seek to re-establish that as they have the opportunity. And Islam means... Based on that, isn't it? Yeah, so the word Islam actually means submission. It doesn't mean peace. Uh, well, if it's peace if people submit to it. So the, the offer that um, Muhammad's troops would give to the people would say, submit to Islam and you will be safe. So as in terms of safe from military attack. And Muslim is one who submits. Is a submitter. That's, that's right. A submitter. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, there's lots of debate about whether Islam is a religion of peace, and we've already explored some of those ideas just now. And also, if groups like Islamic State truly represent Islam. So what is the true expression mm. of Islam? Yeah, so when, when people talk about Islam being a religion of peace, if it means that the majority of Muslims are peaceful people, I have to agree, um, because I've lived amongst them and visit them in many other countries. Mm. Um, but, if but you have to separate 
the system from the people, people don't you? And, and that's what I would do and to say but does Islam bring peace when it gets established historically the answer would have to be no uh, we don't see um, an increase in peace in, in a society when Islam begins to inf infiltrate it or begins to take it and remember historically it was through invasions and occupation that Islam spread to all of these other countries mm. with the exception of Southeast Asia and Eastern Africa mm. so you'd say there's lots of different expressions of Islam today do you want to tell us about some of those different expressions? Yeah, so I, a spectrum of belief. Spectrum, yeah, yeah. I, I always talk about Islam being a spectrum. Uh, so it's it's not just there is one Islam. There are many Islams. Uh, so you get a very liberal kind of Islam, which would be very modernist and tolerant in its expression. The majority of Muslims would be traditionalists who would be seeking to follow the teachings of Muhammad. And then you also get radical Islam down. The, I call that the right wing end of the spectrum, mm. where uh, they would seek to establish Islam by by violence. Means. Mm. So what's the difference between these different ends of the spectrum? Mm. It would be how they interpret the Quran and how they understand Islamic history. So the uh, fundamentalists, the radicals, would tend to take a more literalist view and say when the Quran tells us to go and fight in the name of Islam, and they would say that's uh, our call, and they base it on the context of abrogation, which is that the later verses that the Quran gave cancel out the earlier verses. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the big issue. At the other end of the spectrum, people would say, no, we need to interpret contextually. And uh, we look at ourselves maybe here in Australia or worldwide, we're not being attacked, we're allowed to establish Islamic schools and build mosques, therefore there's no basis for us being violent. And so they would take the Meccan verses which talk about um, peace and tolerance and forgiveness and say those are the verses that we would seek to apply because they accord with our context. Mm. That creates a bit of a problem in terms of how do you interpret the Quran? Yes, historically this battle has been there. Islam has never been agreed on one kind of perspective. You have a whole range of uh, different schools of Islamic law, so they've struggled over mm. this uh, from the beginning. So when one group says this is the true expression of Islam, it's kind of a truth, but at the same time it's not really a truth. There's... <laughs> Yeah, um, disagreement. It's interesting if you look at ISIS's publications, and you can get them online. By the way, you just type in Darbik in. You're not, uh, not going to get on the blacklist for the. You probably will. You get a visit. <laughs> get a visit from ASIO. I was, <laughs> I was reading just, one last night. So but, where can I find more about ISIS? That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's okay. right. Just, yeah, don't tick the join uh, now. Button I'm not suggesting anyone no, does no, that. That's right. No. <laughs> but you can read all their information, and they're very clear. Their materials are quite good in explaining what they're doing and why they're doing it, and they would justify it 100% from the teaching of the Quran, from the life of Muhammad, uh, from serious Islamic scholars. So they would say, look, we're not making anything up. We're simply following what we believe is true Islam and what everybody else should believe is true Islam. So there's obviously a clear connection between the actions of ISIS and they would say true Islamic teaching. They would cite that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. now, but how can we trust your views on Islam? You're not a Muslim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose I bring in a sense of a different voice. I'm not connected connected to any of the different sects of Islam. Mm -hmm. So if you had a Muslim speaker here, they would be either Sunni or Shia or Ahmadiyya, and they would be speaking from that kind of perspective. So I don't hold any kind of view from that perspective. Um, my experience in living in Muslim countries and just and coming away from that with a positive sense of Muslim people. And also, I'm an academic, and anything I write gets uh, subjected to a uh, strong peer uh, review, so I can't just put stuff up there without justifying mm. it. And you've read the Quran as well, I suppose. Yeah, I teach it in Arabic, uh, so that's one of my uh, jobs that Could I do. Could you say a line from the Quran in, in Arabic? Just, oh. just, 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 just so 
yeah, for a bit of interest? Well, let's start off, mate. It starts off, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Malik Yawmadeen, Ayaka Na'abudu wa Ayaka Nusta'een. You want me to keep going? No, that's enough. I think, I think that's convincing enough. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, the first chapter in the Quran. Okay, thank you very much, Bertie. That's great. Now, many of the recent terrorist attacks, such as the ones in France, are linked with the Islamic State. So what's the link then between Islam, violence and terrorism? Yeah, yeah. so uh, from the earliest times, Muhammad used this as a, as a tactic. And the Quran actually speaks about this. Allah says, um, I will strike terror into the hearts of the unbelievers. So using terror as a tactic rather than, say, diplomacy or argument uh, was there from the very beginning when Muhammad would send his troops out to fight during those last 10 years of his life. Um, it was really, and he said, he said at the end of his life, I have been made victorious through terror. So that, that idea of keeping people guessing and uncertain and fearful was a part of the approach. Is terrorism then an abuse of Islam or is it connected to it or what's the connection? Because that whole concept of uh, Islam being a, a system which will ultimately have universal rule, again that comes out of the teaching of Muhammad, when uh, he was asked to put his case to the leaders of Mecca on why they should listen to him, he said, well I'll tell them something that if they take it on then they'll be able to rule not only the Arabian Peninsula but the whole of the non-Arabian world. So that perspective was there and so terror then becomes a, a, a kind of an approach that you can use in fulfilling that goal. Mm. Now the people who do these acts are labelled extremists so why are they called extremists? Mm. I suppose we would see uh, what they're doing is, is beyond the norm of how, how things should normally be done. Uh, we, we would value things like toleration and moderation, uh, but they're saying, no, no, we want to fulfil our, our goal by whatever means possible. And the, uh, so the, the end, they would say, would justify the means. Mm. Mm. As part of bigger questions, we also reflect on the Bible, because surprisingly to many, it offers answers to the big questions of life. But before we do that, we're interested to hear about why you believe the Bible is worth following. So, Bernie, what convinced you to become a Christian believer? Hmm. I was studying um, a science degree at Sydney University. Pretty kind of uh, materialist guy, too much of the brown ale and uh, too much uh, contact with the opposite sex, um, failing some subjects. And I met a couple of Christian guys on campus and they started talking about the Bible. And my first response was, you know, don't bother me with that. But there was a, a sense of curiosity about that. And so mm -hmm. I started to read the Bible. And as I did, I remember... I remember getting up you know, 2 o'clock in the morning reading through and thinking that the answer must be in here somewhere. And the answer that I came across was Jesus and his mm. personality. And, and particularly that verse where he talks in John 10.10, 10, um, I've come that you might have abundant life. And I remember thinking, yeah, look, that's really what I'm searching for. If I mm. put away all the other things, that's really what it, what it is. Mm. So in a sense, my heart was won by that, but it wasn't, I thought, no, no, I'm not going to you know, kiss my brains goodbye because the Christians are saying all of this stuff. Mm. And so and I then... studying science I was studying well. science degree, yeah. So I went to the university library and started looking through the history section and looking at what the non-Christians of Jesus' time were saying about him, so his contemporaries or near contemporaries. And so I looked at guys like Josephus and Tacitus and Suetonus. What did they say about him? And I thought there's enough evidence there from these non-Christian sources to believe that this is an accurate historical record. And on the basis of that, I, I committed myself to, to following Christ. So that was over 40 years ago. Oh, well, excellent. So what made you curious? I'm, I'm intrigued. What made you curious about these two Christians? I used to take them on in debates, as I now do with 
with people who come to me right. um, and saying, I think I can destroy your worldview. And they were, <laughs> they were very gracious about it. And they said, well, you know, let's have a look at why you believe that and whatever. So it was a lot of it was to do with the misdemeanour of the guys, that they Quite. were willing and open to talk about things, and that was a good thing. And you enjoyed the, a good debate. I enjoy a good debate, yep. Oh, very good. Well, the part of the Bible we're reflecting on today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have. And Jesus said once to his disciples in Matthew 5, 43 to 44, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, Bernie, what do you think it means to love your enemies? Mm. It's interesting because Jesus illustrated this himself by his own life. And uh, on the time when the, uh, the soldiers came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, Peter pulls out a sword and chops off the ear of one of them. And Jesus picks up the ear and then heals the man. Mm. So it was... This was a guy who'd come to arrest him. Jesus knew what was coming. He talked about his crucifixion and what was going to happen to him. Um, but he still takes this sense of healing this man who had come to, to put him in this terrible situation. And it's this kind of sense of absorbing evil. You don't allow it to continue, but rather you take it into yourself. And, and the cross, in a sense, was like that. Jesus taking in the, the evil of, of, of the world that was cast upon him. Refusing to retaliate or take revenge, uh, and forgiving the people who've who've done it. It sounds difficult. Yeah, and 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 I think it is difficult. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's not something that comes naturally to people. You know, our our normal response is when something bad happens to us, we want to kick back mm. at the person who's been responsible mm. for that. Mm, no, well, in fact, famed atheist Christopher Hitchens was once asked about the concept of loving enemies, and he rejected the suggestion to love enemies. And he, he responded by saying, we have to hate our enemies and try to destroy them before they destroy us. So... Hitchens' view is similar to what, the natural human reaction, you think? Yeah, yeah, and, and it's kind of a zero-sum game thing, you know, that any time I concede ground to you, it means that I've lost ground for myself, and mm. it's, it's based on a, a mentality of scarcity, that there's not enough resources to go around in whatever way. And, and I would challenge that, and Jesus certainly did. You know, it's a real sense of I can actually give you space to stand on and, and not seek to try and take that away from you, and it doesn't diminish me in any way. Mm. So how then is Jesus... Jesus' command to love enemies different to Islam? I think the way that Islam doesn't teach this idea of loving enemies, they, they would see that as a very strange kind of teaching. And when I talk with them about that, they'd say, no, no, we can't accept this. It, 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 it doesn't come in our teaching. Muhammad certainly didn't do it, um, uh, and therefore we're not required to mm. do that. But for us as Christians, that's, that's a, a call for us to uh, forgive people and also to be positive in our response to them. Loving is not just a kind of a gooey feeling. It's rather taking uh, positive steps for their welfare. Mm. So how do Muslim people react when you mention this? Oh, they often think I'm very naive. Uh, they'll say that would never work. They'd say if, if you love your enemies, then it means that you're just going to step aside and let them walk over you uh, and that you will have no rights. Um, and I say, well, no, actually, that's uh, confusing love with weakness and love is not weak. Well, love is actually strong uh, and we can actually respond to people in a strong and loving way. This is obviously a radical teaching that Jesus proposes here because it goes against our natural human intuition as what Christopher Hitchens suggested and also what Islam teaches. Mm -hmm. So could you suggest that perhaps Jesus was an extremist? 
uh, in that sense, it certainly was. Uh, yeah, it, it, he didn't kind of fit the uh, the mould of what people expected him to be, and I think that was ultimately the the cause of the at least the human cause of the crucifixion that he was uh, pushing too many buttons, and people said we've got to get rid of this guy. He's dangerous. Mm -hmm. So therefore, is religious extremism the problem, or is it really depends on what you're extreme about? Yeah, I think that's you can be um, extreme loving. One of the things in one of the countries we lived in, Yemen, and uh, Mother Teresa, the Sisters of Charity, had a, a home there, and they would go around and collect the people uh, that had been dumped, often from rubbish dumps, so children that may have um, cerebral palsy or very bad deformities, and bring them up in their home. And it was kind of an extreme love. It didn't make any sense. Uh, you know, the people that were literally on the rubbish heap of life, why would you put all your resources into this? Uh, mm. So in that sense, it was seen as an extremist kind of mm. thing. So how have you seen Jesus' love for your enemies in action? Mm. In our time in Yemen, uh, we were there for eight years, we saw 10 of our colleagues shot dead in a whole lot of different incidents. In fact, the first one was an attack on the Mother Teresa home where uh, three of the nuns were killed um, by a guy who wanted to clear Christianity out of the nation. One place that I was particularly connected with was a hospital down in, in the south of the country. And I knew the administrator and the doctor and the, um, uh, she was a, a, the hospital director quite well. Well, they were shot dead by a guy who came in one day. Um, he said, I, I want to clear um, the nation of this filth, uh, of the Christians being there. And they captured the man. His gun jammed and they captured him. And the government said, we're going to execute this man. The hospital director's wife, um, Marty Kane was her name, she petitioned the government not to do that. She said, look, my husband has died and that's a terrible thing. This man has committed a crime and that's a terrible thing, but you don't need to take his life um, because our, our teaching is that we would love our enemies and, and not seek to take revenge against them. And this became national news. People couldn't understand this. They said, this is, this is crazy stuff. Uh, how can you not do that? You've got the opportunity to take revenge on this man that's taken away your husband and you're, you're not going to do that. So that was a, an example. There. Wow, that's very powerful. It's obviously very Tragic story. Very tragic, yeah. Um, yeah. What was the rea reaction? Oh, um, it was interesting when they buried the people there on the hospital compound and uh, um, Dr Martha, um, Martha Myers, who was a, a great kind of a, a doctor but also a, a teacher there, an evangelist, um, and on her gravestone it's just written, she loved us. And also in your own personal life, you've had an example of where maybe you're not quite on the same level as, as that. Uh, you've prayed for someone who insulted you. You want to share the story? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, I, I used to ride my bike around uh, Sana, which was quite unusual. Uh, they'd go, me, oh, look, old guy on a bicycle. That was really quite unusual for them. And there were not many non-Arabs there in the city. And sometimes I would cop abuse. Uh, and I remember one time I was riding along and this guy, little young fellow, yelled out, F you. Um, it was probably the only English terms he knew. He probably didn't know what it meant, but knew it was insulting. And I thought, no, I shouldn't just let this go. So I went back to him and stopped my bike. And I went up and I you, put my... You decked him. And, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm going to tell I, you. Yeah, tell you, you yep. <laughs> I, 
I said to him in Arabic, um, I want to bless you. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ, in a very loud voice. And he said, what are you saying? I said, no, I'm saying I am bless you because we're told to, to bless people. Anyway, in Yemen, they're very kind of social people. And soon a crowd gathered and they're all standing around us. And they said, what's going on here? And I said, oh, this young man, he insulted me. He swore at me. And our leader, teacher, told us that we have to bless those who persecute us. So I'm just blessing this man in the name of Jesus. And he, he was overcome with shame. He'd now been brought out into the public and he said, oh, I'm very, very sorry. I promise I'll never say that again. So I gave him an Arab hug and a kiss and we shook hands and, and we, we went off. Mm. And I think it was an important way of just saying, yeah, we don't have to respond in anger. We can forgive and we can actually seek to make friends out of, out of the people who think that they're our, our enemies. Now, I've had a few questions come through, which I'll try to feed in now. Some bit of pushback. Yep, uh, some yeah, say it's unfair to talk about the violence of Islam alone. Christians are behind the Crusades. Mm-hmm. What kind of a system allows that kind of violence? Good. Yeah, yeah, and this is a, quite a common one. People often say, yeah, well, um, Christians are just as just as culpable in terms of the Crusades. One of the, the, the big differences to note that uh, even though the Crusaders wore the cross on their on their their chest on their uniform, they weren't representing the teaching of Jesus. And particularly the cross, which was a a repudiation of revenge and violence, uh, is an inappropriate symbol. So I would say the Crusades were doing this out of a kind of a political perspective, not reflecting what Jesus taught and certainly not what Jesus did. Mm. So if Jesus would not have led the Crusades. Which is quite significant. Maybe one of the differences perhaps between Jesus and Muhammad. Yes, yes. so Muhammad led about 27 battles himself. And again, I've got details of all those in my book. And and then sent his um, troops out on another 50. um, Assassinated people who criticised him. uh, Beheaded uh, prisoners of war. So we've got two leaders who lead lives in quite different directions. Mm. Another comment or question has come through about it. It sounds as though Christians are perfect. <laughs> what do you react to that? Uh, I wish they were. They're not. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that that's the real struggle in terms of you, you have a, um, a system and a teaching and a founder uh, who um, puts forward these really high ideals, which are hard to, for people to live out, and people constantly fail. Mm. One well, of the, it wasn't naturally for you when you hugged that that boy, yep. it wasn't quite your natural response. It wasn't my natural response. It had, it had been, and prior to that, there had been angry responses. Um, <laughs> and so we were thinking, so what would Jesus do in this kind of situation? Mm, and you draw inspiration from that. Yeah, yeah. Recognising that. that you're still not perfect. Yep. Because loving enemies is really at the heart of the Christian message, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And I think at the cross, you know, it's really about uh, God forgiving, you know, sinful humanity. Uh, and, and, you know, Jesus, when he died, it wasn't just um, someone who made political political enemies or a political mistake. That may have been the perspective from the human point of view, but from God's perspective, it was a way of bringing humanity back into the family of God. Hmm. So Bernie, how do we respond to Islamic extremism? Mm. I think there's a, a couple of things that are happening with Islamic extremism. First of all, there's an ideology behind it, and, and I talked a little bit about that at the beginning. Um, ISIS is, and other groups, so Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab and uh, Abu Sayyaf or whoever it is, they've got different kind of manifestations around the world, have got an ideology about how the world should be and how they're going to get there. So they're expecting that they want to see universal rule um, of their particular brand of Islam, 
and uh, violence is a legitimate means to establish that. And I think that ideology needs to be challenged and to say, well, actually, the fruit of that uh, is not, not good, it's not positive, uh, and you can see that by looking around the world. It hasn't resulted in an increase in peace, so as an ideology, it's defunct. But there will be some who will continue to do that and, I, and they will uh, seek to carry it out by military means. And I think that's where the, the military and the police have a role in terms of protecting their, uh, their citizens. The, the need to do something instead of just saying, well, it's not our problem, I think was paramount. And the third one is that it's actually people who are carrying these things out, so individuals. And our call is to, to pray for them uh, so that God would change their hearts and to engage with people to talk about these kinds of issues. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, how do we respond to Islamic extremism? From Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Bernie Powell.